Amen. All right, friends, let's do this. If you got your Bibles, let's go. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's a blue one underneath the seat you're sitting in. You can reach down there, I'll flip that open. Hebrews 10 is on page 1108. 1108, Hebrews chapter 10. We've been in Hebrews all summer long, and we're going to continue to be in Hebrews for the rest of the summer, all the way through uh, the month of August. Uh, we're going to be in, in Hebrews together. And now here we are in Hebrews chapter 10. For those of you who are new, real quick, real quick, uh, kind of catch you up a little bit. Hebrews is a sermon that was preached to kind of a first century Jewish Christian audience in Rome. Okay, First century Jewish Christian audience in Rome. In Rome, um, and what's happening in Rome is there's this intense persecution that's, that's happening uh, on these Jewish Christians, and, and what they're saying, what they're beginning to think in their minds, and even some of them maybe beginning to do, um, because of this persecution. Right, nobody's died yet, but there's there's there people who are being beaten, being arrested, losing their jobs. There's their their, their families are being uh, enduring suffering because of this. They're saying, man, maybe we should just go back. Going back to just being Jewish and not being Jewish Christians, right? Go back to the synagogue. Go back to the old way of life where we had some religious freedoms and where we were protected by uh, Roman law. And maybe we should just go back to that. And what the preacher is preaching is you can't go back because what you have in Christ is infinitely better than what you had back there. And now we're in the middle of this uh, kind of big argument in the middle of Hebrews. Um, and it's taken us several weeks. We've been in this for four or five weeks now, this, this one singular argument. This is what the author does again and again and again throughout Hebrews is he builds and builds and builds an argument, right? And he kind of lays out the argument. He says, here's another reason. And he does it again and he does it again and he does it again. And so this big one in the middle is that Jesus, right, has even diminished the things that you have back there. He's made, he's rendered those things useless. The, all of those things existed just to point you to him, and here he is. And what, is, what it is is this. The heart of the argument is Jesus is the great and final high priest. He's an infinite and perfect high priest. He's a high priest of, a, of an infinitely better covenant. He's a high priest of an infinitely more holy, holy of holies. And he's a high priest, and this is where we're going to go this morning, he's an high priest of an infinitely better sacrifice. Okay? So those have been the four things that we've looked at, or the, the three things, and the fourth one we're going to look at this morning. This morning we're going to see that Jesus, our final high priest, became, he became our final sacrifice. And through his perfect atonement, he has perfected eternally those who are being completely transformed until the end. That's a lot, but that's what we're going to see this morning. That Jesus, our final high priest, has become, he became our final atoning Sacrifice And through this perfect atonement, he has perfected eternally those who are being completely transformed until the end. Now, here at Flourishing Grace, we believe that this, this, this is the word of God. The one, the one who speaks the heavens into existence. The one who has given us life. The one who is sustaining us has given this as a gift. And so in honor and reverence to the word of God, if you're able, would you stand with me this morning as I read it for us? Hebrews 10, we're going to read 1 through 25. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices, that's what he's going to talk about, right? By the same sacrifices, it can never, that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. They can't do that. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said the above, you neither desire nor take pleasure in the sacrifices and the offerings and the burnt offerings and the sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, 
in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying this, he, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law on their hearts and I'll write it on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. All right. That's a lot, and we have got to get through all of that this morning. But before we even get into any of that, which we just read, right, we've got to answer a question first, right? The, the main kind of thrust of this text is that Jesus has eliminated the need for sacrifices, right? That's what, that's what the author is getting at. But in, in his audience, his, his kind of first century Jewish audience would have instantly been drawn into that argument. They would have instantly been and then leaning in and listening, and like, this is amazing. Oh my gosh, are you kidding? This is, this is so incredible. But for you and I, I read that, and you're just like, okay, like, all right, I don't know, okay, who cares, right? If Jesus has eliminated the need for sacrifices, the question that we ask is, why did we ever even need sacrifices in the first place? Why, why do we even need sacrifices. If you don't know the answer to that question, right, this, the whole text, the whole chapter 10 is kind of like meaningless. It's me meaningless, right? So we have to ask, answer the question, what, why, why sacrifice? Why is this even important? Why who cares? Why do we ever need sacrifices in, to begin with? If you've been around Flourishing Grace, you've, you've heard me talk about this uh, a number of times, right? The gospel, the gospel of Jesus, the word gospel literally means good news, right? Euangelion. The good news, right? That's, that's what it means. It's the good news. And we would argue that the gospel is the, the best news, the greatest news ever. It's the best news ever given, ever told in the history of the world. But, but here's the thing about good news. Every time there's good news, every single time, it comes out of, by necessity, it comes out of at least the, the, the chance of bad news. Every single time, right? So, so if your kid comes home from school and it's straight A's, that's good news, right? That's good news. Who doesn't want a kid to have straight A's? But the reason why it's good news is because there's a chance the kids get D's and F's, right? That's why it's good news. If the doctor calls and there's a cure for what you have, that's good news. The reason why it's good news is because you had an incurable disease, okay? Now, here's, here's, here's so every single time, every single time there's, there's good news, it comes out of, by necessity, at least the chance of bad news. And here's the second piece of this, right? The greater the good news, the worse the bad news, right? D's and F's is, is bad news, right? It's bad news. A's, good news, right? But when the doctor calls and there's a cure for what you have, that's better news. That's better news than A's. Why is there being a cure better news than, than A's? Because, it, it, because an incurable disease is worse than D's and F's. Right? Having an incurable disease is worse than your kid getting D's and F's on a report card. So, so, the, so the better the good news is, right, the, the worse 
the chance of bad news is. This is just how it works. It's just by necessity how it works. This is logic. But here's, the, here's, here's where I'm going with this, right? Here's the problem. If, if the gospel is the greatest news ever, and I will argue all day that it absolutely is, that Jesus Christ has usurped the throne of a wicked and deplorable king, Satan. And he has restored the holiness and the righteousness of God. And he has made a way for us to re-enter into the presence of God. And, and the implications of this go on and on and on and on. By his blood, he has done this. Because it's the best news ever. And it is the best news. It has to come out of, by necessity, the worst news ever. It has to. It has to. And the worst news ever is this, that you... And I have trampled the glory of God and are due an infinite just punishment for our wrongs. You see, in the Garden of Eden, God gives Adam and Eve the entire stinking garden. This is, is all yours. It's all yours. All of it. Every, every ounce of it is yours. There's one thing that's mine. It's this tree in the middle of the garden. This one's mine. It's sanctified. It's set apart for me. And it's there so that you can recognize me as your God. You are not me. I am not you. I am God. And so don't touch this one. In order to pay honor to me as your God, this one's mine. The rest is yours. But, but we know the story, right? Adam and Eve eat from the tree, right? The serpent says, man, if you eat from that tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Be like God. And that's what they longed for. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to have the same knowledge, the same power, the same ability, the same control. They wanted to have the same authority. So they reached and they tried to take it. And in doing so, they trampled his glory. They trampled his holiness. They walked all over it. And you and I have been doing the same thing every day ever since. All the time, constantly, we are doing the same act. I read this quote last week uh, by R.C. Sproul uh, in his work, The Holiness of God. I'm going to read it again just so we have a grasp on sin. R.C. Sproul says this about sin. He says, sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. Wrap your mind around it. It's not like you wrong somebody who has wronged other people, who have wronged other people, who have wronged other people. No, no, you are, you are wronging a perfectly pure sovereign. The one, the one perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude, ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything. To the one who has given us life itself, have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin? The most minute peccadillo, which means like this tiny little offense. What are we saying to our creator when we disobey him at the slightest point? We are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not, not what you command me to do. And this is what we're saying. This is what we're declaring every single time we sin. I want to be God. I want to be in control. I want to be in charge. I, my way is better. I know what I'm doing. I know how to live. Leave me alone. And we do this every day, again and again and again, for all of sin, and falling short of the glory of God. And, and here's the second piece of this. So, so yes, we've all done this. But justice always, true justice, always demands atonement. Justice is right and good. And in its rightness and in its goodness, it demands atonement. It demands atonement. Atonement is, is, is a reparation for wrong or injury, right? It's a payment, right? It's making right something that we've made wrong. It's, 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 it's correcting something that we've injured. It's, it's a payment for that. Justice demands that. And we believe this. You want this. Even, even, though, even though when we are the one who has done the wrong, we don't, we don't want it. But we always want it, right? 
And, and justice is also scalable, just like, just like good and bad, right? Good news and bad news. It, justice is also scalable, right? When my kid breaks into the pantry and steals a cookie, Oreo cookie, and I say, hey, man, did you take the cookie? And he looks at me and says, no. And I look at him, I say, well, what's that all over your face? Because every time a kid eats a cookie, an Oreo cookie, it is always on his face. Why is that? I have no idea, but it's, it's always, like, when do you learn how to eat an Oreo cookie without getting it all over your face? Like, I, I watch him eat it, I'm like, okay, you eat that cookie the same way I ate the cookie, but I look away and then I look back, it's all over your face. I don't understand how it gets there, but every single, like, the evidence of the Oreo cookie is always on the kid's face. And he says, no, I didn't eat it. And we have a rule in my house, right? And the rule is we say what really happened, Right? Which in my mind is better than don't lie. Because I want my kid to know, what is a lie? A lie is when you don't say what really happened, right? So we, the rule is we say what really happened. And when my kid says, I didn't eat an Oreo cookie, and I look at him, I say, no, yes, you, you for sure did eat an Oreo cookie, right? He goes to timeout because he didn't say what really happened. And everybody in the room agrees that's a good plan. And the reason it's a good plan is because you should teach your kids from a young age not to lie to mom and dad. There are bad things that happen along the road when kids habitually lie to mom and dad, right? It's a good thing. Put the kid in time out. Now what happens when a man rapes a child? Let me say that escalated quickly to good. Here's, here's why. I want you to understand this. I want you to understand because it, 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 if you take that man and you put him in time out, like, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not just send him to his room for a minute. That's not, that's unjust. It demands, that, that action demands a greater atonement, a greater payment, a greater consequence. Put that man in prison. Some of you are like, no, I can think of some other things I want to do to that man, right? It, it, it demands a greater atonement. The worse, the breaking of a greater morality, right? You, you have this morality, and, and, the, and the greater you break that morality, the greater the judgment, the greater the atonement must be. It must be. And, we, and, and, and even though in, there are times you might try to argue against that, in your heart, you agree with that. That, that, they, that the man deserves something worse than my kid who's still a cookie. And here's the bad news. What you and I have done is infinitely worse. Because we've sinned against an infinitely holy God. An infinitely holy God. There's a demand on the table. And the table, the demand is holiness. Holiness. And the worst news ever is that you and I have walked all over the holiness of God. And we do it every single day. This perfect justice and this perfect, this perfect, perfect justice. It demands a payment. Anytime holiness is missing, it demands a payment. We see this throughout all all of history and throughout all of Scripture. It demands a payment. We see it in the garden with Adam and Eve. It demands a payment. We see it in Noah and the flood. It demands a payment. We see it in the exile of Israel, in the enslavement of Israel. We see it in hell. We see it every single time. It demands a payment. And that payment is the, is the worst, the heaviest, the biggest payment that you can begin to possibly imagine. It's far worse than the man who rapes a child. We've sinned, we've wronged an infinitely holy God, and the wages of sin, Romans 6 says, is death. It's death. That's what's due to us. Not, not, just, not just, yes, I'm going to die in this life death. That is absolutely a part of sin. It's like written in the curse, right, that I will one day die. That, that exists. My death exists. Your death exists. The death of our loved ones exists because of sin, because we've trampled the holiness of God, but also eternal death. That is the weight of sin, eternal death and also a living death, that every day of my life I live underneath the curse of sin because of what I have done, because of what you have done, because of what we have done. There's death in my marriage every time my wife and I argue. There's death in my family every time my boys rebel against me and every time I lash out at them. There's death in my relationships and death in my friendships and death in my work and death in my career, death in my, death in my dreams, death in my, all, all of my life I experience death. It's written into the curse of sin. And, and the Jews, they knew the consequence of sin was death. 
And this is where atonement comes from, right? This need for atonement, right? They knew it was death. And this is where we, we enter back into the, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. We talked about this last week, right? But the author is still talking about it. This is what he's talking about in the first few verses is, is Yom Kippur. We talked about last week, Yom Kippur is, is the one day, it's set apart, it's marked holy, it's the most sacred day in the entire Jewish calendar. It still is to this day. It's the most holy day. It's the day of atonement. The day where every Jew tries to get right with God. Even to this day, to this day, giving in the synagogue goes through the roof on the Day of Atonement, leading up to the Day of Atonement, right? Because they got to get right with God. Serving, volunteering goes through the roof in the synagogue because they got to get right with God, right? Um, it, the, the attendance goes through the roof. They have to rent out larger spaces because the synagogue can't hold everybody on the Day of Atonement. We need to do more. we got to get right with God. That's what we have to do. We need to atone for our sins. And, and, and part of this Day of Atonement was these atoning sacrifices. We didn't talk about this last week, okay? This is what the author is going into this morning, right? There's these sacrifices. Every year on the Day of Atonement, the priest would sacrifice um, two lambs, two rams, two goats, and one bull every year, okay? And the bull, the priest would get up early in the morning, and he'd put on his, his high priestly garments, and he would sacrifice this bull for himself and for his, for his own sins and for the sins of his family. And the blood of that bull would be sprinkled over his house, over his garments, over him, to, to, to set him apart as holy and say, yes, I am sinful, but I belong to you. I am sanctified by God. I am set apart for God. I belong to God. And these other sacrifices would be over the things inside the tabernacle, right? There, there would be blood on the, on the entryway, blood on the tent, blood on the lampstand, blood on the Ark of the Covenant, blood on the altar benches, blood everywhere, right? And then the two goats... The two goats, one, one goat is, is killed, right? It's, it's pierced, it's, it's, it's bled out. And this is killed for the sins of the people, for the nation of Israel. The whole nation would gather on this day, pressing in against the tent. And they would kill this goat for the sins of the nation of Israel. And they would take the blood of that goat, and they would take the other goat, and they'd put the blood of the one goat all over this, this goat, which is gross and weird, and hopefully they weren't friends Hopefully they weren't, like, related, but they probably were. And they would, they would cover this other goat in, in the other goat's blood. And then the other priest, they would take this goat, and they would walk it out of the tabernacle, or out, out, of the, out of the outer court. They would walk it out of uh, the, the encampment of Israel. They would take it out into the wilderness. And, and, and legend says they would either lead it to a place where it was, like, super rocky and craggy, and there's no way this goat is surviving. Or, or if they couldn't find that place, they would just running off a cliff, right? Because they wanted to ensure that the sins of the people that were imparted to this goat never came back in. And so the sins are atoned for by the blood of one goat, laid on another goat, and carried away, removed from the people, so that God could, on this day, come in and be with his people, the day of atonement. Now, here's what the author says about this, and this is what he's saying. He says, all of this, all of this work, everything they did, all this blood, all this weird stuff, it didn't do anything. It didn't do jack. That's what he says. That's what he says. Look at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow, it's, it's pointing, it's a, it's a picture, it's, it's saying, look, there's something greater coming. It's a shadow of the good things to come. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, that's the Day of Atonement, it can never make perfect those who draw near. It's not doing it. Because you have to do it again next year. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't remove your sins. You've got to do it again next year. He goes on in verse 4. It is impossible, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You can't be more clear than that. It didn't work. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Right? What he's, he's quoting Psalm 40. And what he's saying is, God doesn't even want this stuff. He doesn't want you to kill a goat. He doesn't, he doesn't want you to burn a bull. He doesn't want any of that. He doesn't, he doesn't want it. He doesn't delight in it. He's not sitting in heaven and be like, yes, this is what I wanted today. It's like, it's like my birthday. I'm getting all these things. No, it's, he doesn't want it. It serves as a reminder that our sin has brought death upon us. And no matter how hard you try, 
You cannot escape that. You can't escape it. You can't, you can't change it. You can't, you can't do it. And so in, in our culture today, right, we, 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 don't, we, don't, uh, we don't kill animals uh, to atone for sin. That would be weird, and you'd go to jail for that. Um, however, however, we are still a people who, who want a clear conscience. Even if you're not religious, even if you don't go to church, right, nobody wants to walk around feeling guilty, right? E- everybody wants to be free from guilt. I want a clean conscience. I want to know that if there is a God, I'm right with that God. I, I want to know that I'm right with my friends. I want to know that I'm, I'm living a good life. I, I want a clean conscience. And so we do this, and in many ways, we worked and fight to have our same, kind of same modern-day secular Yom Kippur. I want to be clean. And so we do this again and again and again. There's all kinds of actions we go through. There's two main ways that I want to talk about. There's, there's more than two, but in our Western culture, and in, specifically in Utah, there's two main ways. The first is this, that we, we hide our sin, right? We just bury it, just bury it uh, in, in this mask of religion. We hide our sin in religion, right? We've been sold that, this, that there's a life over here. You can enter into this way of life, and if you, if you give the right amount of money, if you give your 10%, and you do the right things, you, you, you follow the rules, right? And you serve the right amount of time, and year after year after year, don't forget, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, it's every year. Every year, every year, just like Yom Kippur, every year. You want to be right with God? Every year, are you doing the same thing? Are you doing the right thing? Every year, are you doing these things? And we've entered into this and we say, all right, I'm going to do all the right things in order to have a clear conscience. And, and then everybody around us begins to say, look at how good you are. Look at how smart you are. Look, look at what you've achieved. You, you, have, you, are, you are now worthy. You've earned the title, you've earned the status, you've earned the calling, you've, you've gotten all the things. And what you don't even realize, what you don't even realize, what you don't even, you've locked yourself in a cage. You can't get out of it, you can't escape it. You see, the bars on the cage are the people you love. It's your friends, your best friends, your coworkers, your family, your spouse, your kids. They, they, you, you're locked in this cage and you can't get out because in order to get out, you've got to let them all down. You've got to say, I'm none of these things. I'm not worthy. I haven't atoned. I've gone through all the motions of just a very sin. And it made me feel good. It made me feel good. But when you come face to face with Christ, you realize that I'm not right. My conscience isn't cleansed. My sin isn't quenched. It's just covered by a bunch of garbage. It's not working. But you can't get out of the cage. Because you're not willing to commit social suicide. You're not, willing to, you're not willing to let your family down. You're not willing to risk your marriage. You're not willing to risk your career to, in, order to, in order to let everybody down and say, say, that's not who I am. You're stuck. You're trapped. Tim Keller, who's a pastor and author, theologian, he, he writes this. He says, to truly become Christian, you know, you might, you might live in that cage and say you're a Christian, but to truly become Christian, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. If that's you, if you, if you're, if you know what you said to you, you're stuck in this cage and you're afraid to let people down, you're afraid to admit that that's not true, that that's just, that you're not atoned by these, by these works. It's all a facade. Hear that line. If you want to truly become a Christian, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. The reasons why you're in the cage in the first place. I want people to, to, to like me. I want my family to be proud of me. I want, I want them to, to say, good job. I want to, I want to be called worthy. I want to be called that, that I've done all the right things. None of it has anything to do with Jesus. Pharisees only repent of their sins. But Christians repent of the very root of their righteousness, too. We must learn to, how to repent of sin under all of our other sins and under all of our righteousness. The sin of seeking to be our own Savior and Lord. It is the only way you see the desire to be your own Savior and Lord lying beneath both your sins and your moral goodness. 
that you are on the verge, only when you see this, is you are on the verge of understanding the gospel and becoming a Christian indeed. Friends, if this is, if this is you, that you've gone through all the motions and you've, you've convinced everybody around you, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Look, I've done all the right things. I've done all the right things. I'm a Christian. You've got to let everyone down. You've got to let them down. I'm none of those things. I am not holy. I am not righteous. I am not worthy. And giving a certain amount of money and serving a certain amount of time and doing all these things that I've been doing for years in order to hide my sin has not made me any of those things. Listen, God does not delight in the blood of bulls and goats. He doesn't delight in any of that either. He doesn't delight in any of it. Second, second way we do this is rather than cleansing our conscience by the blood of Christ, we, we just shift our conscience over here. And I convince myself, right, I kind of build my own world where we say, this is, this is so prevailing in our Western kind of hyper-individualistic culture. Where we say, man, everything, listen, listen, don't, you cannot tell me who I'm supposed to be, right? I define my own morality, right? I shift my conscience. Here's ultimate morality, right? I just shift it over here. No, I'm my own morality, right? I am in, uh, my unique individual self on a path of self-discovery where I'm going to find out who I am. I'm going to find out who I want to be. I decide my own gender. I decide my own sexuality. I decide my own path. I decide my own career. I decide all of I decide what's right and wrong. I define it. I decide, right? And this is, this is applauded and encouraged in our Western world. This is what we do. This is how we live. This is how we live. Many of us are living this way. We don't even realize it. Just like the person in the cage. We don't, we don't realize it. We're pretending to be our, the, the, our own kind of pillar of morality. We don't, we don't realize it. But I define what's right and wrong. And, and this too is unsustainable. You can't sustain it. Right? Because what you need is constant affirmation. Constantly people saying, you know, no, you are right. But you know, you, the way you think about that, that's true. What you believe about that, that's also true. Right? The way, you, the way you do that thing, that's, that's the right way to do it. And so what we've done in our Western society is we've locked ourselves in these echo chambers on social media. We've locked ourselves in echo chambers in 24-7 news media. And we've locked ourselves in echo chambers of friends who constantly just affirm our, our own kind of morality. This is what's right. This is what's true. And we see this everywhere. And we're constantly like, yeah, but not me. Now, I know everybody's doing that, but not me. Constantly lying to ourselves, constantly locking ourselves in an echo chamber where everybody agrees with us. And, and over here, if somebody disagrees with you, right, they, they're, they're, they're a racist bigot. Or, 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 or they're, they're kind of this hyper-socialist, Marxist, crazy hippie, right? That's, it's one or the other. This is what we've created. I am my own sinner. Right? And we just constantly need affirmation. And the second reason why this falls apart, it doesn't work, is because, because you, your morality, right, no, nobody is going to listen to you. You might say, racism is wrong. The, the neo-Nazi over here says, no, it isn't. Is it, yes, it is. Why? Be because it is. Well, why? Because I said so. Who are you and why should I care, right? That's, that's what it is. You have no ground to stand on. But for the Christian... The one who sees God as the ultimate source of all morality, the perfect sovereign, whom we sinned against. I can say racism is wrong. Racism is wrong. Well, why is it wrong? Because the creator and the sustainer of the universe, the one who has spoken the stars and the planets into their being, into their existence, the one who is sustaining your life and mine right now says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is my commandment, that you to love others the way I have loved you. You've been created in my image, and therefore every human being has been given worth and value. You're created in the image of God. Who says? The God of all things. He says, not me, who cares what I think? can't shift your morality away from the one who is 
is perfect, pure, sovereign. It's like, it's like getting on your hands and knees and growling a lot and saying, I'm a lion. Rawr, I'm a lion. No, you're not. No, I am. Who says? I say. No, you're not. Listen, friends, listen. Put that person in a cage with a lion for two seconds. And they'll quickly realize, okay, I'm not that. Let me out now. I'm not that. And one day you will stand before a perfectly pure sovereign and you will realize in that instant, in that moment, I'm not that. I never was. Not even close. I'm nothing like that. But we are a people who are constantly, constantly shifting and hiding our sin so that we can fool ourselves into believing that we're right and that we're okay. Trampling the glory of the most glorious is the most serious crime we could possibly commit. And we do it every time we sin. Daily creating the highest offense against an infinite God. In your mind, you are repulsed by murder and rape, child abuse. These are heinous in your eyes. And yet you are so willing to create a far more defaming act every day by quietly justifying it away. And all that our days are spent trying to justify this, trying to make us feel better about it, and we can't do it. We can't atone. We can't atone for what we've done. We can't make it right. We can't make it right. It's all pointless. But Jesus can. He can make it right. This is what the author is trying to get you to see, right? Jesus can. How does he do it? He does it by substitution. Look at Hebrews in 10, 9. It says, then he, Jesus, added. He said, behold, I have come to do your will, right? Blood, bulls, goats, you don't want any of that. You, you don't love any of that. You don't, want, you don't want to have anything to do with any of that. But me, I've come to actually do the thing that you want to do. I've come to do your will. He does away with the first, all of that sacrificial system, in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How are we made right? By the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But... When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Because it's done. The priests are constantly offering these sacrifices, constantly trying to atone. You're constantly trying to do all these religious acts to hide your sin. You're constantly trying to listen to people who are going to affirm you as you shift your conscience. But Christ does one thing, and he sits down. He's like, I'm done. It's over. One sacrifice for all time, all sin, an infinite, perfect, eternal sacrifice. The perfect one created a perfect atonement. The infinite one became an infinite sacrifice because Christ is infinitely holy. He can cover my, my lack of holiness because he's infinitely good. He can cover all of my evil because he's an infinite God. His sacrifice endures infinitely for me. I can't do that. I can't do that. Nothing I can do can do that. Only Jesus can. How does he do it? He does it by substitution. This is what I said earlier, right? The smart people, not me, um, call this penal substitutionary atonement, okay? <laughs> penal substitution. okay, you're with me. Penal substitutionary atonement, right? Penal, a punishment, Punishment, right? P penal, substitutionary. Christ in my place. Atonement, making it right, paying the cost, right? So Christ was punished because of me. And you gotta say that. You gotta say that. We don't wanna say that, right? It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. I'll say, okay, Christ went to the cross for me, right? Christ died for me. Like, he chose to do that. Christ was punished. Because of me. Penal substitution atonement, right? He was in, in my place. My sin was punished on Christ. It was laid on him and punished by the God of all things. God didn't let my sin go unpunished. Oh no, it was punished. Every ounce of it. 
Christ was punished because of me. You say, that's not true. God wouldn't do that to his own son. Look at how Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 53. This is how God puts it, speaking through Isaiah, verse 5. But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the beating that brought us peace. And by, the, by his wounds we are healed. Right, That description right there, that verse, is the first goat. It's the first goat on the Day of Atonement. The goat that was pierced, the goat that was killed, the goat that bled out. Christ becomes the first goat. He's killed because of my sin. Look at verse 6. And all we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to their own way. We've all done this. This is all of us. You don't escape from this. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the second goat. God has put on him the iniquity of us all and sent him out. It's sent out. It's out of my life. It's away from me. He has removed it. It's infinitely removed because it's put on an infinite sacrifice. He's both. He is the final, perfect sacrifice. Jesus, our final high priest, became our final sacrifice through his perfect sacrifice. He has perfected eternally those who are being transformed until the end. Our salvation came at a great cost. Infinitely. I have no condemnation because the eternal one died and his blood eternally covers me once for all. Not because of anything that I've done or anything that I'm doing. Not because of my righteous deeds. Not because I, I've created a new morality. Because the infinite one went to the cross and was punished because of me. It's the only way that I receive atonement. It's the only way that any of us receive atonement. And in, 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 in doing so, he sanctified me. He sanctified those of us who are in Christ. He sets us apart, right? Just like the blood in, in the tabernacle sanctifies all of these things and declares, this belongs to God. It is set apart. It's sanctified, set apart as holy before him. Jesus' blood does that to me, and it can do that to you too. It can set you apart and say, you, you don't belong to this world anymore. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to him. But be careful with that. It's a dangerous thing. say, I surrender all, all of my rights, all of my freedom, all that I am, I surrender it to the one who has infinitely given more than I could possibly give. You see, when you do that, you're ruined. You're ruined for anything less. You can't, you can't do any more. And this is what the, where the author is going, right? That, that, that all of our life from that moment is, is lived out for the king, the infinite one who has infinitely given infinite grace to me, right? And my, my life is lived out for him every moment of every day. My morning belongs to him. My afternoon belongs to him. My, my evening belongs to him. My night belongs to him. Every day, all day, it belongs to him. The rest of my days are his. It all belongs to him. Not so that I can earn something more. He's already done all the work. It belongs to him because of what he's done been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. This is what the author is trying to say in the very end. He says this. He says, we become his possession, right? Therefore, verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have this confidence to enter in, he's, he's wrapping up this whole argument in these verses. Since we have this confidence to enter in the holy places by the blood of Jesus and by this new living way that he opened up through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, right, that's everything he's talked about for the past four weeks we've been talking about that. Therefore, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can draw near. Our days are meant to be lived with him every morning waking up in prayer and in the word and being near him and giving our day to him. Draw Near. It's the first thing. Draw near as a result of what he's done. Draw near out of gladness and delight and joy. Draw near. Number two, verse 23. Let us hold fast. Don't give up on this. Hold fast to the confession of hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful, hold fast. Every day is his. Every day is his. It belongs to him. Hold fast to it. 
And finally, verse 24, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We love each other and we stir one another up. We tell each other, and listen, I know you don't, you feel condemned right now in your sin. I know that you did something that you think Jesus can't, can't save you. His atonement for you is infinite. It's infinite. You're covered by his blood. Let's stir one another up in love and good works. Don't neglect to meet together. If you're not, listen, last year we were robbed of being able to meet together, right? And people know, listen, it, 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 it's sorrowful. We, we are filled with a low-grade depression and anxiety because no one's speaking into my life. No one's saying, Josh, you are loved. You, you are covered by the grace and the mercy of Christ. On your worst day, he's got you. On your worst day, he is better. His blood is enough. It covers you. It's infinite. It's infinite. For all of your sins that you've ever committed and all the sins you ever will commit, it's given. Listen, stir one another up to love and good works. Let's serve him out of that. Here's how Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, puts it. Charles Spurgeon, he says this, 1500s. He says, now, brethren, the children of God are sanctified persons. Right? We, we're holy. We've been made holy. We're his. To offer spiritual sacrifices unto God through, through Jesus Christ. And we have no right to do anything else but serve God. You have no right to do anything else. Like, what? That's, that's a hard thing. It's a hard pill to swallow. And it was for, even for that in his day. He says this, what say you? What say you? Have I not to attend my business? Yes, and serve God in your business. Am I not to look after my family? Assuredly you are, and serve God in your family. But still... You are to be a set-apart person, sanctified, holy, made holy. You are not to wear the white robe nor the breastplate, but still, you are to think of yourself as being as much a priest as if the breastplate were on your breast and the white robe around your loins. Ye are a priest unto God and his Father. He hath made you a particular generation, a royal priesthood, and hath set you apart for himself. He's quoting 1 Peter. God has saved you. He's made you his people. And you're ruined for anything less. If you've actually accepted an infinite atonement, there's nothing left for you in this world other than to serve the one who is infinitely worthy of it. That's a horrifying thing. Tim Keller, who I quoted earlier, he tells a story in one of his books about this lady who says, man, I, that, that scares me. He says this, he says, I, I asked her, what was so scary about unmerited free grace? How can you be scared of that? She replied something like this, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it's really true that I'm a sinner, saved by sheer grace, at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. And so, friends, that's, that's the question, right? That's, that's the question. Are you, are you a sinner and only a sinner? Are you unable to atone for your sin? Are you guilty of cosmic treason? Are you guilty of the ultimate crime against the God of all things? Not against humanity. Oh, no, no, no. Far worse than that. Are you guilty of wronging the sovereign one, the king of kings? Do you stand before him condemned? Is, is that who you are? Are you a sinner saved by sheer grace and grace alone? Is that true of you? If so, saved by an infinite cost to him, there is nothing left for you here other than to serve him for the rest of your days. You're ruined for anything less. And so let us be a people who hold fast, who enter into his presence. Enter into his presence. Let us be a people who, who draw near to him every single day, draw near to our God, give our lives to knowing him, give our lives to holding fast the confession of our faith. And give our lives to stirring one another up in that same desire, in that same love every single day. Let's bow our heads. For those of you in the room 
this morning who you know, are just in a, in a place where you hear all of this. You say, no, 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 yeah, yeah. God, God is infinitely loving, and he's, and he's given an infinite gift, and, and all that. I, I believe that, but not for me. You, you sit underneath this weight of condemnation. You sit under this weight of your sin. You, 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 re, you re, replay the tape in your mind of this thing that you did way back there in the day, and you hurt somebody. You maybe hurt multiple people. And you're not free of that. And you've been burying that. You've been hiding it behind religion. You've been, you've been pushing it out of your mind and creating this new conscience. I want to invite you this morning to actually become free. To actually lay, lay it before the blood of Christ and to let it be sprinkled clean. actually give your life and say, no, no, I'm, I'm done. I'm done hiding. I'm done running. I am, I'm yours. I want to be yours. I want to be, I want to be washed in pure water. I want to be baptized into, into you, not in some organization, not in some religion. I want to, I want to give my life to Christ. I want to be yours. You are the only place where there's true atonement and true freedom from my sin. I can't do it on my own. ourselves upon your mercy and your grace. You've called us by your blood. You've washed us in your blood. Cleansed us from our unrighteousness. Made us holy. Infinitely holy. And you are the only one who could do so. I'm a wretched man. saved by sheer grace. 